Old Town Road launched Atlanta artist Lil Nas X into a solid spot at the top of the charts. I knew for a fact that this song would take me to another level, but I, I can say I knew that it was going to be worldwide or nationwide. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, how a song gallops from hit of the week to song of the summer. Plus, meet the freeze, Duran Dunn, a Jamaican track and field masters athlete who's speeding things up at Braves games. One of the great promotions in all of baseball and all of sports, the freeze against a fan. The freeze, did he have enough time to catch the fan? And here Atlanta's Knapp Bishop spread the transformative gospel of the siesta. You can stay up for On Second Thought. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Barbara Klein. An airstrike has hit a migrant detention center in Libya's capital, Tripoli. At least 40 migrants are dead. NPR's Jane Araf reports the United Nations is calling it a possible war crime. The airstrike was a direct hit on a hangar where migrants were being held next to a militia base in the Tripoli suburbs. Libya's UN-recognized government blames the attack on forces loyal to General Khalifa Haftar, who has been fighting to take control of the capital in the divided country. This week, Haftar's group said it would intensify airstrikes in Tripoli, and it warned civilians to take shelter. Haftar's self-styled Libyan National Army, which controls part of Libya, denies it is behind the attack. Under Libyan and European Union policy, migrants intercepted at sea while trying to get to Europe are sent back to Libya. The country is seen as a gateway to Europe by African migrants who try to cross the Mediterranean. Jane Araf, NPR News. A federal judge is blocking a Trump administration policy that would keep thousands of asylum seekers locked up pending the outcome of their cases. As NPR's Joel Rose reports, the judge says asylum seekers have a constitutional right to bond hearings. U.S. District Judge Marsha Peckman ruled that migrants who are detained after entering the country illegally to seek asylum do have the right to a bond hearing in immigration court. Attorney General William Barr decided in April that the government would no longer offer such hearings and instead keep migrants in custody, part of the administration's broader effort to deter a surge of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. But immigrant rights advocates sued to block the policy, which was set to take effect this month. Peckman ruled that credible asylum seekers must receive a bond hearing within seven days or be released. Migrants who are released from custody have a much better chance of finding a lawyer and ultimately winning their asylum cases. The Department of Justice is expected to appeal the ruling quickly. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. A U.S. military jury returns to court this morning in California to decide whether a decorated Navy SEAL will spend time in jail. Steve Walsh of member station KPBS reports Edward Gallagher was largely exonerated on charges stemming from his time in Iraq. SEAL Chief Eddie Gallagher has been found not guilty of the most serious charges he faced, including the murder of a detainee in Iraq. The military jury found him guilty of the charge of posing with a dead body on the battlefield, which carries a maximum four-month sentence. Gallagher could avoid jail time altogether if he's given credit for time already served. The trade deficit has risen to $55.5 billion. That's a more than 8% increase from April to May and a five-month high. Imbalances with China and Mexico widened. This is NPR. 
Iranian President Hassan Rouhani is threatening to increase uranium enrichment to any amount it wants beginning this Sunday. It's seen as an effort to pressure European signatories to the nuclear deal to ease the strain of U.S. sanctions. The Justice Department says 2020 census forms are now being printed without a citizenship question. The administration is abandoning the legal fight to include it. But NPR's Hansi Lo Wang reports President Trump doesn't seem to be ready to back down. Trump administration officials confirmed Tuesday that paper census forms would be printed without this question. Is this person a citizen of the United States? A majority of the Supreme Court recently ruled to keep it off the census because the administration's reason for it, quote, seems to have been contrived. But President Trump has tweeted that he's asked the Justice Department and Commerce Department, which oversees the Census Bureau, to, quote, do whatever is necessary to bring this most vital of questions to a successful conclusion. A federal judge in Maryland has ordered the Trump administration to reach a written agreement with challengers of the question that confirms the administration is no longer pushing for its addition. That agreement is due by Monday. Hansi Luang, NPR News, New York. The U.S. women's soccer team is heading to the World Cup final after beating England last night 2-1. Who they face will be determined today in the semifinal between Netherlands and Sweden. The U.S. won even though star player Megan Rapino was out of the game because of a strained hamstring. I'm Barbara Klein, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Jacob and Valeria Langloth Foundation, supporting the health and well-being of underserved populations at langloth.org, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Like many of you, the On Second Thought team is prepping for July 4th barbecues, pool parties, and parades. Another thing that we're cooking up, playlists. And so far, this song dominates the summer shuffle. After 13 weeks at the top of Billboard's Hot 100, Old Town Road could be 2019 Song of the Summer. Well, today we're going to dig into that song's Come From Outside Rise and talk about what propels a catchy single to summer season dominance. But first, we're going to roll back to the colder months when Billboard yanked Old Town Road from its hot country chart. Billboard execs essentially said of Atlanta native Little Nas X's hit, that ain't country. Georgia Tech professor and music journalist Joyce Lynn Wilson begs to differ and wrote about that assessment for the bitter southerner and joins me now in the studio. Welcome, Joyce Lynn. Hello. Thank you. Well, Lil Nas X released Old Town Road in December. By April 13th, it was number one on the Hot 100 and by most accounts, probably bound for number one. So how to get there? Well, you have to think about how Lil Nas X probably was sitting up deciding how he he was going to do this song and what he was going to use in order to get it out there. And I just think that it was a perfect storm of the ability to use memes and the virality that comes with social media mixed with some innovation and just being from Atlanta. Like we have to keep in mind that we, you know, he's from Atlanta, so he's bred around a particular type of energy around culture, innovation, and music. I mean, Atlanta has been dominating hip-hop for the last 30 years. So I think that he is part of a history and a legacy that gave him an opportunity to really put a song out. I mean, you have to keep in mind, here you have a 19-year-old 
who decides that he wants to drop out of college, right, and become a rapper or become a, a culture creator, right? So he decides that, you know, I'm going to sleep on my sister's couch. I'm going to tell my parents. And I really got to make this work for me, you know. And to be able to find a song online from another young man that lives in the Netherlands. Right? They paid $30 for the sample $30. as far as I know. And had no idea that he was sampling Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> Which is so cool, right? So you spend $30, your last bit of money, and you buy the song and put together his own campaign. You know, take the song, put put create a video that is re- that is from the Red Dead Redemption 2 video game. So just the innovation and the resources that he tapped into to create this song and then the, you know, it's part of the meme challenge, then it goes on to TikTok and just become this viral hit that gets everybody's attention and he categorizes categorizes it because it's it has so many different genres that it's pulling from. I mean, hip hop is a sampling culture, right? Mm-hmm. It's a sampling it's a sampling movement. And so he does all of this and gets the attention of Colombia, you know, starts hitting the charts. And then countries like, yo, take that off. <laughs> That's not what we do. At least that's not how we do it, right? So so I think that's it was just a perfect storm of him just being and timing too, you know, being nineteen and, and growing up as a digital native mm-hmm. as, as, he's often know, identified as a meme yes, artist. He's a so, meme artist. Yeah. So this is who he this is what he knows. And so it just reminds me of how Southern hip hop you know, has also this history of being able to take something that's really cheap use it as innovation and then put it out there. This this is kind of off subject, but just last week, this group Crime Mob celebrated 15 years of a song called Nuck If You Buck, which is really part of Down South Trap Music's canon. And it was really six kids from Ellenwood who wanted to express themselves but couldn't afford Pro Tools, so they used Fruity Loops. So I'm I'm reminded just of that youthful energy with Lil Nas X and just kind of taking what is available and putting it out there for people to enjoy. Well, here's some youthful energy, a group of kids singing the song in Atlanta. Listen, Drifter. And then just a couple of days ago, another fan became an internet sensation. (laughs) That's an Australian shepherd getting his howl on. (laughs) But I want to go back to what you were saying, you know, a month before Old Town Road was number one on the Hot 100, debuted at number 19, again, propelled there by TikTok, which for anyone over, what, say 24 is? <laughs> <laughs> they might not know about, right? <laughs> Social media network. But what was the explanation given when Billboard knocked Old Town Road off the country music charts? Um, the explanation was that it did not fit the way in which they identify country compositions. So whatever that formula is that is designated for country or for a country sound or for a song to be country, which 
um, I never could find. This is the reason why they said they took it off. Mm-hmm. Well, some critics called Old Town Road cultural appropriation. You say not a chance. Why not? Of course not. I mean, cultural appropriation. I don't. I don't think that you can appropriate something you were a part of creating and had a had a had a really strong voice and role in creating the sound of a song. And so if we're going to talk about cultural appropriation of country music, I could see why people think that country music is for white people by white people. I can get that because we're at a point now where it's pretty much dominated. The genre and the industry is dominated by white men. But the first performer on the Grand Ole Opry is a black man, black people blues music is very much a part of the development of what we get as country and so that storytelling that sound and the role of black musicians and creating those stories and those sounds is very much indigenous to the music and the culture but maybe not so much the genre at this point so i can see how people could get that confused but no i mean you don't see Nine Inch Nails saying, hey, you guys are appropriating rock music, but is that acoustic string rock? You know, so it, it gets into this conversation around just the organization and the sound of music, right? And what is country and what isn't country. I'm speaking with Georgia Tech professor Joyce Lynn Wilson about Old Town Road by Little Nas X. The Atlanta native song has been 13 weeks at number one, but it did not get there without a few bumps and potholes in the road. What do you think about Old Town Road? Do you love it? Do you hate it? Have you had enough? You can let us know. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. I want to bring a couple more folks into this conversation. Floyd Hall is an Atlanta-based writer, documentarian, and producer of Bottom of the Map. That's a podcast about Southern hip hop. Floyd, welcome back. Good morning. Glad to be here. Nice to have you here with us. And also with us is Alan Light. He is a journalist, author, and a host of SiriusXM's Debatable. He joins us now on the line from NPR in New York. Hello, Alan. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Okay, so let's get into that, what Joycelyn was just talking about, like white music for white people. Uh, So what felt like overnight, Billy Ray Cyrus, I guess Lil Nas X put out a tweet and said, like, I think we need Billy Ray Cyrus on this song. He, sensing an opportunity, which is an interesting thing in itself, um, didn't know if you had any thoughts on that, why Billy Ray, who's considered kind of an outsider in country music now, he's no longer a hit maker, let's put it that way. Well, I mean, he understands, you know, how to be, you know, when you're blocked out of a particular genre, he gets that. I mean, he has an experience with Achy Breaky Heart. You know, folks didn't think that was country enough. You know, so I believe that he was he saw an opportunity, but he also has some compassion. You know, he has shown up for the performances of the songs. He's brought Lil Nas X as well to different festivals. And so I think that they're collaborating well at this point. I would like I hope that they continue to perform the song together. I think that he saw an opportunity. and He took it. I thought they were performance together on this the BET Awards was a little spiritless. I don't know if you saw that one. I thought it was good. Did you? I did. I, I was I was happy to see him. You know, it was something about him performing that he, he felt like I had this I felt this energy from him like he had arrived. I'm talking about Lil Nas X. Like mm-hmm. he really felt like he was there and 
I think I think Billy Ray Cyrus did a good job. I like the dancers. I think it was a good performance. Okay, I'm not dogging on Billy Ray then. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's not. I'm not like pro Billy Ray, but I think he saw an opportunity and it's working for both of them. Well, it is not the first. It's hip hop or rap country crossover. It's it's been called. There was over and over again by Nelly featuring Tim McGraw. Let's hear a little of that. All right, a little middle of the road, a little more recently, Georgia's own Jason Aldean, Dirt Road Anthem featuring Ludacris. Okay, both of these songs, I guess, qualified as country rap and Old Town Road doesn't. Floyd, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I think it's just an, an interesting uh, perspective on... Um, you know, what we assume culture and music to look like. And I think that when those two things don't align in, in certain gatekeepers' heads, then you get what we got when it comes to Lil Nas X. And I think that when you look at Atlanta as a music city and Nashville as a music city, um, with country and hip-hop being, you know, their their calling cards, I think those cultures just work differently. And I believe that what we, what we are currently experiencing um, – or what we experience with, you know, uh, Old Town Road is that there are certain gatekeepers in certain places and they have the ability to affect how we um, ultimately perceive and receive certain music. Yeah, well, so that's one of the things about Old Town Road, that it's not so much the what, but the how, that it got there without going through the traditional uh, Nashville gatekeepers. You were, you're nodding your head, Joyce Lynn. Yeah, I mean, it turned out that he didn't need it. You know, he had the people, he had so many other people, he had... You know, when you have a dog that can feel the spirit of a song, I hate to get so cliche-ish, you know, but, you know, it really touched a lot of folks. So he really didn't need country to endorse him. The song had already been endorsed, and it's already on the Hot 100. It's it's the longest-running rap song, you know. Nobody can touch it. Nobody can touch it at this point. And, you know, he really didn't. And that's the, and the Hot 100 is the flagship chart for billboard so okay i think that the country music charts kind of lost out on something alan we have just a minute before the break but i just wanted to get you in here what do you think is this that it's showed that the music industry has changed at least how charting has listen i think there's there's a couple of things and and quick i think that you know the great thing is we all think pop music, it's formula, you could make it up in a lab, you know, there's no art to it. And then these things happen that nobody ever could have anticipated, that obviously no music executive would have thought this is a thing that could be a number one hit. And that's what's great about it. In the end, the audience really does determine what they respond to. And as much as we want to be dismissive of pop music as something that's, you know, uh all too predictable um, and, and and all too corporate. That isn't the way that it actually works for listeners, and that's always exciting to see and a reminder that this stuff is way more interesting than uh, than a lot of people think it is. Well, thanks so much, Joycelyn. I know we have to say goodbye to you, but Alan and Floyd, please stick around. Joycelyn 
Wilson is a Georgia Tech professor and music journalist. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I and, appreciate it. You know, we just need another excuse to hear more of Old Town Road. I'm sure <laughs> nobody has heard enough of that one. We'll stick around. We're going to talk a little bit about the sound of the summer or the songs of the summer. We're talking about the music industry right here. How does a catchy tune become the song of the summer? Stay with us. We've got more on Second Thought coming up. Tweet us your songs of the summer. We're at OST Talk. I'm Virginia Prescott. Hang out. We'll be right back. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, we're back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. It is the eve of Independence Day, so we're popping off, popping a top off, let's say, of some of the summer's biggest hit songs and talking about what makes a catchy single the definitive song of the summer. Here's how that annual honor has evolved over the past 10 years. I got a feeling that tonight's going to be a good night. Well, what's on your playlist? Some new bangers or some old go-to songs that say summer? We would love to know. You can tweet us at OST Talk to join the conversation. You can leave us a voicemail. We're at 404-500-9457. And if you get extra points, if you sing it. Because this is a summer weekend on the way, we're st- we, 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 got, we got Joycelyn Wilson to stick around with us this morning. <laughs> Georgia Tech professor wrote about Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. Uh, uh, for Bitter Southerner, Alan Light is with us from NPR in New York, host of Sirius XM's Debatable. Floyd Hall is also with us, Atlanta-based writer, documentarian, and producer of the Bottom of the Map podcast. Um, Floyd, I want to ask you first, you know, we just took a deep dive into Old Town Road, and I hear you're ready to retire this one. <laughs> you know, I think it's not even so much a matter of wanting to retire it, but I am a, a tad bit Old Town Roaded out, and I think that this is more so a function of our digital culture, and not that the song is bad or getting old, but normally there will be a song that will come and emerge and take its spot in our collective consciousness. And I don't know if that's quite happened yet in terms of uh, a vibe that all of us are kind of feeling and jumping on. So I think I'm kind of waiting for that next big summer wave to come crashing over us. Well, we've got a lot of contenders for that. We've got, uh, so, but this is really what's interesting. You know, Old Town Road, we mentioned it's been on the top. Taylor Swift has a new record. Justin Bieber has a new record. Nobody has been able to touch this record. And, and, and so, so are we looking for something new or have we settled in to this one? I don't know. Joycelyn, you're, you're nodding. I've settled into it. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with hearing it over and over again. I, it is definitely a part of my summer playlist, along with some other older songs. I mean, when we think back to summertime, you know, with Fresh Prince and DJ Jazzy Jeff, I mean, it played a the. I mean, we didn't have social media and digital to Floyd's point at that time, but it played over and over and over again on our radios and to the point where we're still playing it now with the new summer hit. So I'm okay with Lil Nas X and Old Town Road 
just really milking itself to, uh, I mean, the listeners want to hear it, so that's that's fine with me. Alan, what do you think I that think, song has that others don't? Well, first of all, I think it's it's game over for Song of the Summer. Uh, <laughs> I think, I, if the question is, does, does Old Town Road have six more weeks in it? I don't think there's any question that it has right. six more weeks in it. Um, and as much as there are Big name contenders, as you've said, it's held off two Taylor Swift singles. It's held off an Ed Sheeran and Justin Bieber single. Um, the you know the big guns are taking their best swings at it, and uh, and Lil Nas X is fighting everybody off and holding on to that number one. And I don't think that's going to stop in the next few weeks. And I think to get back to something Jocelyn was talking about earlier in the show, I think that in some ways it is so much the perfect representation of so much about where pop music and a pop audience is right now. Mm -hmm. I think that even if you listen to the those <clears throat> songs that you played over the last decade of Songs of the Summer, the main thing that stands out uh, for what's happening in pop music really is this erasing of the idea of genres and genre distinctions, the blurring of those lines between the ways that people, especially that kids, listen to music now. And I think when a lot of us grew up, uh, the way that we listened to music, there was something very tribal about it, right? You listened to rock, you didn't listen to country. You listen to hip-hop, you're not interested in pop music. In a playlist culture, as we move to the ways that kids get music one song at a time and cherry-pick the stuff that they like, it's increasingly impossible to draw much of a distinction between what's a country song, what's a pop song, what's an R&B song. Um, and and this, it, this, this song really represents the explosion of that to where nobody knows what to call it. Billboard doesn't know what to call it. And what it's doing is ticking the most boxes, the most audiences, the most different listeners, finding them, as you were saying, virally first outside of the industry. And you know, that's where this business is right now. Mm -hmm. This is a year we haven't had. <clears throat> there hasn't been new music from Beyonce, from Adele, from uh, from Gaga, from you know, there's the Taylor Swift album coming. But in the meantime, it's a lot of these smaller, outsidery, genre blurring kinds of songs that are the ones that are really capturing the imagination. Right. Not, that's not what's to mention hold, that hold Lil, through summertime. Well, the Lil Nas X also constantly engaging with followers and fans. You know, this is this, a digital native, as Joyce Lynn was mentioning before. But you also opened up something else about radio play. And I think that that's, you know, uh, the idea of us listening tribally. You know, you either listen to the country station or the classic rock station or the hip hop station. So that's a way that that culture has become sort of segregated but Spotify and other streaming services have kind of erased those distinctions. So just to open this up here, what, in your opinion, are the hallmarks of a summer song? Floyd? Well, I think that uh, Joycelyn kind of mentioned the, uh, uh, the, the, the summertime anthem um, of, of hip-hop when it comes to uh, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, but I would even go back before that. The song that they interpolated with Summer Madness about Cool in the Gang. Mm -hmm. um, my dad would, would appreciate that mention. <laughs> um, but but I, th and I think there's this distinction between a song of the summer and like a summer song, because I think summer songs are songs that you kind of come back to every summer mm -hmm. that kind of mark the beginning of that season for right. you. The mm -hmm. same way that we have Christmas songs that kind of right. start like, okay, you, you play Silent Night at a certain time in the year. So with, with, with summertime songs, I think that you, you kind of have a distinction of, of uh, sort of marking that time period. So for me, even this past year, I go back to Feels Like Summer by Childish Gambino. Like, that was my first, like, 
this is a great summertime vibe song that I will probably keep playing every summer, but maybe not outside of that. Well, we just happen to have that in our back pocket. Let's hear a little. (laughs) (laughs) You feel like summertime. How about for you, Joycelyn, the, the, the idea like song about summer or just reminds you of summer's past? Oh, that was a good point. I mean, because you do, you have, I wonder if summertime is that song that just reminds you of the summer because I don't play it any other time during the year. And then you have a summer song. And Lil Nas X is definitely going to be that summer song. I agree with Alan about, you know, it's going to stick, it's going to stick in there. So, but I wonder if next summer I'm going to be listening to Old Town Road. You got me thinking about that now, you know, with the distinction. Uh, probably so. Or you'll remember, <laughs> I will remember summer 2019. I was yeah. here driving out this place and I heard that song. Let's, uh, let's right, also hear. That, Go ahead, Alan. I think, sorry, I think that's more the, the, the point is, you know, listening to, again, those songs that you played that mm-hmm. were the songs that defined each of the the last summers. I don't know that it's a question that those are in any way summer specific, but I think you know, going back to something you were, you said introducing the show. How do you listen to music mm-hmm. in the summer? We mm-hmm. listen to it at parties, at barbecues, driving around. It's about a first of all a certain spirit, mm-hmm. uh, a certain mood. These are not you know introspective ballads. That's not what you're turning to at that point. And also things that appeal to the widest range of people. Everybody that's coming to your barbecue, what are they all going to like? So what are the songs that are going to tick off the most of those boxes uh, that are going to cross people? who are interested in different genres or different styles or different sounds, those are the ones that come to dominate these months and and define it, as you said, moving forward. Hey, that's what we were listening to during that year and that season. Well, often we talk about the frothy pop hit, or then there's the hip-hop banger for the summer. Let's hear one that's got a little bit of bottom to it. This is Lizzo, who's having a big moment. This is Juice. Okay, that's Lizzo. You could have you could have picked, I think, a lot of singles off of her new record to have worked. But you know, this is another funny thing about you think about the songs of the summer. They're usually produced back in the winter, you know, around Christmas time for this release. Is there a strategy to putting out a song just for summer, Alan? You want to pick that up? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a. I think you know, remember that. To Floyd's point, most Christmas albums are recorded during summertime, and it's always funny to listen to artists talk about, you know, hanging tinsel and bringing trees into the studio in L.A. in the summer so they can get the mood right for a Christmas record. Um, It's a little different, I think, because it's more of a moving target. Uh, Certainly... You think about, oh, is there, a, is there a song? Is there something that we would want to have out for summertime and try to capture that? But there are so many pieces around that. There's also, hey, maybe an Old Town Road is out there that's blocking that space and we're not going to get that, that shot. Um, so I, I think it's, it's really the same strategies that go into trying to come up with anything that's a big pop record. It's just a little more amplified because the season gives different opportunities. The one that, looking at the last few years and looking at Despacito, looking at Cardi B's I Like It, 
last year as I think sort of the, the summer song for last year. The only other one I would keep my eye on right now is the Sean Mendez and Camila Cabello song Senorita that just came out. It's a little late getting into the game for Song of the Summer, but that's one that has the pop feel, the love feel, the sexy feel, a little bit of the Latin feel, and you start to say, okay, that could get to enough different people that it could be one of those, you know, the the, the things that kind of stands for a moment in time. Let's hear that. This is Senorita. We're speaking about the essential summer music of 2019. Alan Light is with us. Floyd Hall is with us. Dr. Joycelyn Wilson is also with us. What's on your 4th of July playlist? We'd love to know. You can tweet us at OST Talk or leave us a message at 404 500 Well, this is also one of those collaborations, and there have been a number of songs of the summer that have been collaborations in some, you know, big attempts. Uh, Justin Bieber and Ed Sheeran have, uh, they haven't put out much recently, but they've got a song. I don't care. And this one, DJ Holland, Nipsey Hussle, and John Legend. This is called Higher. Super churchy for a summer song. I think I think it's got what do you think? Well, I think this highlights that. There are different songs for different places in our lives, and I think in the summer, um, that's even more amplified because I, I know Alan kind of mentioned songs getting to everyone, but I also think that we're in this in this playlist culture, but also this space culture, where the song that I hear at the hotel pool, or the song that I hear on Sunday morning, or the song that I hear late night on Saturday night, uh, or at the the cookout, may not all be the same song. Like Old Town Road doesn't fit all those boxes for me. And so I think that when you think about where we kind of evolve our day and how we are able to have this personalized list of songs that match different moods of our day, I think that's what, you know, has evolved from this space of the mass, like the, the consumption of the masses versus a very nuanced and curated space for my life. And so when I think about, um, you know, chilling at the hotel bar, um, I'm thinking about something not Old Town Road. Mm-hmm. You know, if, I, if, I, if I'm thinking about something late night, three in the morning, you know, when I'm probably someplace I don't need to be, I'm, I'm thinking about future. <laughs> you know, um, but if I'm thinking about being at the cookout, I'm thinking about something like Beyonce's uh, interpolation of Frankie Beverly's Before I Let Go. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I was going to say, my director, LaRaven Taylor, would not let me off of this microphone <laughs> if I did not play some Beyonce. So let's hear it. You know I thank God sun rises and shines on you You know there's nothing, nothing, nothing I would not do It's kind of hard to do one better than Maze, but I think Beyonce has done it here. I think she has. I like the bottom that she put on it. Uh, I think that uh, it works. It you know, I was wondering who was going to take that risk to try to even do some Frankie Beverly. So Beyonce did. I still love the original version better, yeah, though. But I think it's, this is it's, great. 
it's tough to knock the original out of that spot. Though. <laughs> yeah. but we, love her. Want- we love her. She did great. But which one is going to survive long term? You know, mm. Frankie Beverly has put some points on the board yeah. over the years. Yeah. <laughs> Alan, I want to ask you about that, though. Back to the back to the collaborations. Is there a calculus behind that as a song of the summer? You know, the record company saying, oh, we can do it one better if we've got, you know, Sean Mendes. You know what I mean? That kind of combination. Sure. I mean, I think that's not exclusive to Song of the Summer right now, though I think it certainly helps. Um, and again, back to Old Town Road, which is a collaboration in, in its hit version and in its multiple remixes mm-hmm. um, and, and all of the different sounds and spins that it's been given. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Floyd is absolutely, of course, right that there are different songs for different times and places. But when you think of this idea of a song of the summer, and it's an increasingly difficult thing. You know, listen, we're talking about more people listen to more music every day than have ever listened to music before. The idea of building consensus, of being, of having those songs that everybody or big huge swaths of people gather around and and make part of their lives you know that's a really really hard thing to do so sure when a collaboration is successful i mean last year i think there was the question of whether the middle the zed and Marin morris song was going to that one came out in january they debuted it at the grammys it was still going by the time we hit summer there was a question of whether that was going to be the one that was going to block out a lot of other folks um again because the combination of artists the combination of sounds was something that added up to something you know the sum was bigger than the parts and it continued to reach into different audiences and grow and grow and grow over time um and those are the ones that uh, that are still able to get out there and and build that kind of coalition. All right, so just like the summer, this conversation is fleeting, and now it's over. <laughs> Too quickly. Joycelyn Wilson, thank you for sticking around. Thank you. Joycelyn Wilson, Floyd Hall, writer, producer, documentarian in Atlanta, also a producer of Bottom of the Map. Thank you. Terrific, terrific hip-hop podcast. Thank you so much. And Alan Light, journalist, host, and author of Sirius's XM Debatable series. Thank you so much. Thank you. A pleasure. All right. We're going to leave you with one of my quintessential songs of the summer as we head into a break. But stick around. We've got a nap coming. Who doesn't look forward to that? This is On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought. Today, On Second Thought is warming up for the holiday weekend. Your 4th of July plans may include, like ours, parades, pool parties, cookouts, and for the ambitious among you, the 10K Peachtree Road Race. Well, just ahead, we're going to hear from a champion sprinter, but first, a champion of rest. The American Sleep Foundation reports that less than half of Americans wake up feeling well-rested. A 2015 study found that compared to white participants, black participants were five times more likely to sleep less than the recommended six hours a night. Trisha Hersey dreamed of the nap ministry as a divinity student at Emory University, the Candler School of Theology there. Graduate school really took a toll on her sleep and consequently her health. So she made the decision to rest and is known now as the nap bishop. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So you moved to Atlanta 2010. A few years later, started your master divinity program. How long was it before you realized you really needed to rest? Uh, probably the first semester. <laughs> yeah, the first semester I was like, this is a lot. You know, just coming back into being an adult student, I was out of school for like close to 10 years. Mm-hmm. I was in a graduate program, just kind of pushed into something where I was like, oh, the pace is something different. I had a six-year-old son. I was married. I was 
trying to pay bills. So it was like trying to get my footing there was a lot. So th- there's a lot of resistance to, I mean, there are some people who just don't nap, right? Not and who all. I don't understand, I by don't the know way. I who they are, but <laughs> they exist. They, they talk to me a lot. But the idea that you don't rest, how did, how did things change when you decided I need to rest? Yeah, I think I um, got to a point emotionally and um, psychologically, it was so much going on. Um, Black Lives Matter was hitting up. I was robbed. Um, Right. And during the middle of the day with my son, oh, my so entire sorry. backpack was taken with mm. all of my first year seminary work, including, you know, everything was taken. Um, sickness some deaths in the family. So I just was going to quit school. I was going to give up. And instead, I started just coming to school and just sleeping all over the campus. So <laughs> and I started quickly to realize that I was getting better grades. Um, I started to make better connections between my artwork and what was happening in class. I just then that just made me go deeper into like studying the science of sleep and looking at historical documents around um, black people who weren't sleeping. Well, I want to ask you about that because the the tagline of NAP ministry is rest as resistance. Yes. How is this a project of what social justice or resistance? Absolutely. Um, well, I went to seminary um, as an artist and a community activist. And so I already came with that lens. I was coming in studying womanism and black liberation theology, reparations theory, cultural trauma. So that's what I was in seminary for. And so while I'm studying all of this stuff, I'm experiencing it all. And I was working in the archives, um, researching plantation life here in the South. Being in the South, it was um, really fascinating to be down here working in archives, touching documents. And really, I became obsessed with the stories of enslaved Africans on plantations in the South, how they didn't rest, their micro stories of what was really going on. And I just started to um, see sleep and rest as a movement to um, push back against capitalism, white supremacy, to resist this concept of blacks being lazy, really a political and spiritual movement. Mm-hmm. So are people resistant? I mean, can they slow down enough to, to rest? I, you know, when I really when I first started the project, I thought no one would come and no one would, who would lay down with me. They don't even know me. Who would come and sleep? It's such a vulnerable place. But our first event, 40 people came. I well, what, what do you mean event? Like people just came in and napped? Yeah, it was a collective napping experience that I had um, in 2000. Um, 17 at Colony Square here and I just opened up the space for people to come and we had yoga mats which is beautiful altar space pillows blankets and we it got um some feed and um, creative loafing as like a recommended thing for the weekend and I was posting it online and I thought no one would come and I didn't know half the people they were like I'm tired where do I lay down and they were coming and sleeping for two hours straight like people I didn't know waking up like I, I didn't know how exhausted I was. So I think people are really at a critical mass of exhaustion, you know, with burnout, grind, grind culture. And so when people hear about what I'm saying, when I just tell them about the net ministry, a lot of people get emotional. They're like, wow, you know, I really didn't know I needed to sleep. That sounds beautiful. I want to lay down. So you are also an artist. Do you think people yes. thought it was what performance art? Yeah, I really it is performance art um, influence because we do the collective napping experience, which is the community piece of it. We do workshops, and then there's a performance art piece. So there is this irreverent performance art, you know, street art spectacle piece to it that I really love. And so I think people thought, what is this? You know, who's this nap bishop? There's a nap temple. Is this real? A lot of people ask me, is it real? That's a big question. Well, it sounds like it's real. It's so real. Yes. You mentioned two hours. Is there a perfect napping time? I think so. I think um, 
when it comes to napping, you don't want to go too far into REM, a full sleep cycle, because that's when you wake up and you don't know what century it is. You know, (laughs) you wake up like, what day is it? And so to really hit it, I think anything under 35 minutes, um, you can even get benefits from just doing a 15 minute, 10 minute nap. That's Mm -hmm. what I was doing at Candler. Just quick little things in between class. Do you have a a nap ministry, I guess, cathedral or church if you're talking? That is the biggest goal is to get a nap temple. Right now we're just doing pop-ups and residencies at different spaces at yoga studios. Um, I'm going to be traveling to Chicago in a couple of weeks doing some things at a theater. We do work down at my co-working space downtown called Central Forum. So there's a nap pop-up there the second Thursday of every month. How many times a day do you nap? In well, I nap. I have a rest practice. I nap every day. And so, yeah, even if it's certain just, time, um, it re- I really like anything between um, two to four. You know, I'm flexible, though, <laughs> whenever I can get it in. But even if I don't nap, I have a rest practice. I might sit on the couch for 30 minutes and daydream or I might meditate. So I always like to uplift. Some people just really can't get to a nap yet. It's, it takes practice to get there if you aren't a you know, natural napper. And so what I like to say is just slowing down, staring off, resting, closing your eyes, you know, meditating, just having some silence. Well, you have inspired me. Thank you so much for speaking Thank with us. Thank you so much for having me. That's the Nap Bishop, Trisha Hersey, founder <laughs> of the Nap Ministry. For more information, you can go to gpbnews.org. You can be woke and sleep at the same time. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. The Freeze is a welcome diversion at sweltering Braves games. Wearing a head-to-toe leotard, the sprinting mascot races fans between innings of Atlanta's Major League Baseball games, giving fans a giant head start, and the Freeze still wins most of the time. The face behind the Freeze mask this year is Duran Dunn, a Jamaican sprinter who's competed in track and field championships around the world representing the U.S. and Jamaica. On Second Thought, producer LaRaven Taylor managed to catch up with Duran in Smyrna and brought us back this audio postcard. I was born in Kingston, moved to uh, Gregor Park in uh, St. Catherine, and uh, just used to always run to the store for every little thing that we needed to, to buy, and the, uh, like food and all that. My name is Durandon, and I'm a track and field master's athlete, sprinter, and Atlanta Braves beat the freeze sprinter. I have always enjoyed running, and in fact for me, running has kept me disciplined, it's kept me motivated, it's kept me out of trouble. It's what has helped me to go through college, not have a loan, and so it's, it's given me huge dividends in my personal life even through today. Um, So I still do it because I love it. Um, You know, I want my children to to see that. Um, And then it's it's fitness. I feel great, I look good, and to compete at the level that I'm competing at even at my age right now, um, as one of the top athletes in my age division in the world, is rewarding. Um, The fact that I also get to do uh, the beat the freeze with the Atlanta Braves is like an awesome experience running in a stadium. 
you know, 40, 45,000 people with just you and one other person, uh, you know, in the ball games. Gets a head start, and then the freeze tries to catch him. I mean, that's a significant head start. Man, is this instead of the mascot race? I love it. This guy can fly. Looks like a young Damien Nelson. A typical day uh, for me in terms of track and field varies. So it really is not atypical. I have a a program that I follow. So it's really a track and field program um, that is defined and based on the meets that I have to compete at and which meets are most important, like your national championship or your world meets. The difference between the sprinting and the running laps, the sprinting is a lot of, you know, it's fast twitch muscles. Um, a lot of times sprints are just naturally fast. They were just born that way. You can train it, you can get a little bit faster, but it's just fast twitch versus the, the laps is typically a little bit more slower twitch. It's more paced, it's more rhythmic, um, and often more distance um, for those type of run. But for me, I focused everything on sprinting, which is a very technical thing to do. It looks easy. You see the Usain Bolts of the world. You watch the movie Sprinter. It looks easy, but there is a million and 29 things that is happening between the time he goes down in the blocks until you get to that finishing line. It's the same thing, all happening in that 9, 10, 11 second window. I'll move out of these strides and I'll go straight into just trying to get get the body ready to go it's actually 90 about 93 94 degrees out here today so hydration is extremely important and the warm-up is still important even though it's, it's really hot I listened really to everything. Ed, lots of reggae, the Sean Paul, the Vibes Cartel, um, the 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 guys over here too from the. Um, Puff Daddy, just whatever, just kind of randomly pops up. For me, it's not even so much the word, it's just really the beat. So as long as there's a good beat, I'm good to warm up until I'm ready to take off the headphones and, and get down to business. All my friends and neighbors used to say, hey, you could run. Right, they used to could hear me in the house because I was running barefooted, so they used to hear my weight hitting the pavement, I guess. And then... Uh, I got to high school actually, um, Jamaica College, one of the most prestigious high school for me, the most prestigious high school in Jamaica, and um, that's probably the first. That's really the first time that I got into organized track and field and competing in boys' champs and all that. Before that, I was doing just more recreational and sports day type of running. Top record back for, dates back to high schools. 1048, 1049-ish in the 100 meters, 100 meter dash. Um, 
indoor 200 meter and this was actually at Paul Robeson in uh, in high school I was able to get down to 21 one indoor 200 meter yeah we give thanks like we need it the most we have to give thanks like we really supposed to be thankful blessings all for my life and my thank God for the journey the earnings that has been the plus my mother left Jamaica when I was probably 10 years old and first moved to Canada and like most Jamaicans she went over there to work and send money back and so it was just me and my two sisters um, she did Canada for a couple of years I didn't start at high school and then she 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 moved from Canada to America and then lived in New York and after probably about four or five years because I finished all of high school and did CXC exams and all that is when she uh, she made a decision and said, you're going to move here and we're going to go to college. Uh, and that's how I ended up staying uh, here in the United States. You think Atlanta is the city, the big city for Georgia. Um, and there are a lot of Jamaicans that are, it's a growing population here, if you will. In fact, recently, the Prime Minister of Jamaica, Prime Minister Holness, was actually here. Keisha Lance Bottom, our mayor of Atlanta, was here as well, and I had the opportunity to have breakfast with them, um, talking about the increased partnership that we want between Atlanta, Georgia at large, but also, but with Jamaica. Um, there is a group here we call the, the, the Jam, Jam Cham, the Jamaica, Chamber of Commerce here in Atlanta that helps promote the Jamaican businesses, um, particularly in the south side of town. So you think about Stone Mountain and Decatur and Lithonia. A lot of us, a lot of Jamaicans are over there. But, but you're also seeing a huge influx of Jamaicans here in Cobb County, Alpharetta, um, Roswell, in the northern kind of parts of uh, the Atlanta metro area. So the culture's grown. We have the parades. We have the, the festivals here uh, in Atlanta, uh, the food. We have direct flights going to Jamaica. So we have a rich culture here. It's certainly not like a New York, but I would imagine 10, 15, 20 years from now, when you think about how diverse Atlanta is, the opportunities that are here, again, the, the, the busiest airport in the world, the ease to get to Jamaica, you're going to see a... a, a, a huge growth. Thanks to LaRaven Taylor for that audio postcard. Music from Sister Nancy, Sean Paul, and Coffee helped create the mood. We've posted a few videos of the freeze whizzing past Braves fans that are well worth watching, and they're on our website. That's where you'll also find information on the somewhat slower-paced Peachtree Road Race, which gets underway tomorrow in Atlanta. We've got tips on where to see or to steer clear of that and other holiday weekend traffic snarls. All of that is at gpbnews.org. And as we head into the 4th of July holiday, On Second Thought producer Leighton Rowell is preparing to sprint off into the next chapter of her life. Leighton got her undergraduate degree at UGA, where she was managing editor at the Red and Black. Now she's headed to a graduate program in global media culture at Georgia Tech. 
pretty impressive, as was her stint as a Fulbright Scholar in Brazil, an internship with the AGC's investigative team. Leighton has been a tirelessly creative and whip-smart colleague who we really hate to lose, but know she'll do great things in journalism. And if her bulldog colleagues can forgive her, so can we. Happy trails, Leighton. And for the last time, On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, LaRaven Taylor, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our intern is Allison Kraussman. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. However you celebrate, have a booming fourth.